many years ago when I was in seminary, I remember I, uh, one time I kind of quizzed some of my classmates with this question. In one word, what would you like your reputation to be? And uh, I remember one uh, person said, wise. And another person said, loving. And I don't remember what all the others said, but they could have been, you know, lots of kind of things like cheerful or funny or friendly or courageous or generous or prayerful or happy or encouraging. So anyway, I uh, thought that might be a good topic for us right now. So what I'm going to have you do is group up into in about groups of three or four or so and respond to this question, okay? So now remember, you don't have to say what you think your reputation is. <laughs> but what would you like your reputation to be in one word? And of course, as you group up, if you'll kind of take a glance around. If you see somebody who's alone, ask them if they want to join your group. And if you don't want to share in a group, you don't have to. Just feel free to listen. Uh, but anyway, share what you would pick for your one word, and uh, you can start. We'll take about a minute or two starting now. Okay. How's it going? Did you get the chance to share, everybody? All right. Um, anyway, today we're talking about this. We're talking about our reputations, and it's part of this July series that we're doing uh, from the book of Daniel called How to Thrive in Babylon. And by the way, if you want to watch the previous two messages in this series, it's really easy to do that. You can go to our website or our Facebook page, and we have a Faith Westwood app, which is really easy, just kind of point and play. And then, of course, if you're kind of into listening to podcasts while you're driving or walking or something, uh, you can find that as well. Um, now, in the Bible, uh, Babylon became equated with arrogance and idolatry. Babylon was a city, yeah, but it became a symbol. And here's how I would describe that uh, symbol. Will you say it with me? Babylon became a symbol of humans taking the place of God, assuming the power to redefine good and evil. Now, the ancient city of Babylon, I mean, it no longer exists. There's no city of Babylon anymore. Uh, but what Babylon symbolizes is alive and well in the world today. Babylon is anywhere that people harden their hearts and call good evil and evil good. Babylon assumes that might makes right. So let's open our Bibles to, to Daniel chapter 5. If you brought your Bible, great. If not, we got plenty of them uh, in the pew rack in front of you. If you need to share with somebody next to you, please do that. It on, starts on page 887. Um, and just to give you a little bit of the, of the timeline here, um, in the beginning of the book of Daniel, in chapter 1, Daniel's a young man. He's just been exiled from, his, from Jerusalem and brought all the way, uh, deported from Jerusalem and exiled to Babylon and, and inducted into the king's service. Well, in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, uh, the king has this terrifying dream about a magnificent large tree that's been cut down and remains lifeless for seven years. 
Well, the king knows that Daniel can help interpret this kind of stuff, so uh, he calls on Daniel to, to tell him what the dream means. Well, uh, God reveals to Daniel the meaning of the dream and is not really good news for the king. Uh, he will suffer from a terrible mental illness. He will end up leaving his throne and living in the wilderness. And this will last for seven years until the king acknowledges that the Most High God is sovereign over all the nations, including his. Well, story goes, 12 months later, King Nebuchadnezzar is walking along the roof of his palace, surveying the wonderful, beautiful city of Babylon. You know, by the way, it was known for its, the wonders of the world was the hanging gardens of Babylon, okay? So anyway, he, he's really arrogantly praising himself for all his mighty power and all his glorious awesomeness. And then he hears a voice. Nebuchadnezzar, your royal authority is taken away from you. Immediately, his sanity leaves him. He ends up living in the wilderness like an animal for seven years until one day he raises his eyes toward the God of heaven and his sanity is restored and then he praises the God most high. Nebuchadnezzar returns to his palace. He resumes his life as, as the king of Babylon, but now he returns as a humbled man and he honors the God who is sovereign over all the nations. Well, eventually Nebuchadnezzar dies, and a series of short-lived successors follows him. Uh, ancient historians record that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. Well, but then, of course, we're reading in Daniel chapter 5, it says Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. So what's up with that? You know, and for some time, skeptics thought, well, hey... This just proves that the, the Bible's mistaken and, and this story in Daniel is just some old legend and you can't believe it. Until archaeologists uncovered more records from ancient Babylon. And they said that Nabonidus was indeed the last king of Babylon, but he left Babylon for many years and left his son to run the kingdom in his place. And his son's name was Belshazzar, just like it says in the Bible. So anyway, by the time we get to chapter 5, Daniel is now an old man. He's been getting the, the senior discount at the Babylon Burger Bar for a long time, okay? Daniel's no longer connected to the people in high places and politics but he still has his reputation. He has a reputation for someone who spends time praying to God three times a day, someone who follows God's word, who listens to the Holy Spirit. Now, Belshazzar, uh, like a lot of ancient kings, and actually like a lot of kings more in our time, liked to hold huge feasts, you know, big, great big banquets, uh, and, of course, you do this to build up your reputation and make yourself look good as a very rich and powerful person. So now, if you will, you got your Bible open? Daniel chapter two, 5, we're going to look at, start with verse 2. While Belshazzar 
Belshazzar was drinking his wine there at the big party. He gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. I mean, I read this, I go, Belshazzar, what do, you, what do you think you're doing? Just a side note here. Uh, many scholars agree that uh, the word father in the Bible it, it many times uh, often refers not just to a biological father, but also to a forefather. So it can go generations back. Or in terms of, of the throne, it could be a predecessor king. Okay? And that's kind of what's referring to here when they call Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father. But, but look at Belshazzar's uh, arrogance. You know, by, by drinking from these sacred goblets from the Jewish temple, he, he's just, he just throwing it in the face of anything that is holy. You know, I mean, it would be like, it would be like you know, one of us using a communion chalice at a tailgate party. Huh. I mean, you just wouldn't do it. It would be a misuse of something that is important and used for a special purpose. Um, now, we don't know how many wives and concubines uh, that Belshazzar had in his Babylonian harem, but there must have been quite a lot because, you know, to complement all of the thousand of his nobility guests uh, that were dining with him. And, and, of course, with all of this drunkenness and sexual cavorting, I mean, it fit right in to the way that they worshipped their idols in Babylon. Now, Let's look at verse 5. Are you with me? Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Here's a, here's a photo of Rembrandt's painting of Belshazzar's feast. So if you can't really see it up close uh, well enough, maybe you could you know, look it up at home. Uh, you see this, you can't see all of the people, but just a few of them there uh, at, the, at the banquet, and, and you see the shock on his face. That's what I like. And the shock on some of the other faces is there as this, as this hand appears. And the woman in the foreground on the right whose back is to us, I mean, she's so shaken, she's spilling the, the wine from that sacred goblet. And we see the hand writing on the plaster wall. This is graffiti from God. Yeah. And if you've ever heard the phrase, you know, you see the handwriting on the wall, that's where it came from. Daniel chapter 5, you knew the Bible more than you thought you did. And when you, real, when you realize that your ruin is imminent, let me tell you, you have seen the handwriting on the wall. So, the writing that, that's on the wall is in Aramaic. So, so, Belshazzar doesn't read Aramaic. He doesn't know what it says, doesn't know what it means, but he, but he figures that this is probably not a good omen. <laughs> and so, while he's at the party, he calls in his specialists, you know, uh, his omen interpreters, the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, and he promises, okay, whichever one of you guys can interpret this, I'm going to treat you royally. You're going to get to be a, wear a big purple robe and a nice gold chain around your neck. And I'm going to, it says in verse 7, you with me? At the end of verse 7, he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. You know, that's puzzling. 
Because you would expect a king, and there are similar passages like this, you would expect that the king would say, you would be made the second highest ruler in the kingdom. Why does it say the third highest? It only makes sense if Belshazzar knows that he's the second highest behind his absent father. But the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, they don't know Aramaic either. They can't figure out what the message says or what it's about. The nobles are baffled, and the king, his face turns white as a sheet. Now, in verse 10, who's in, who gets introduced? It is the queen. Now, most scholars look at this, and because she remembers way back to Daniel's earlier life, most scholars figure that she is the queen mother. So let's skip down to verse 11. She says, there is, a, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Well, she's, she's a polytheist, so she would say holy gods. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. At the end of verse 12, she says, call for Daniel. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Now, why does the queen mother remember Daniel? Because of his reputation. Ever since Daniel was exiled to Babylon, he guarded his reputation. Now, sometimes that godly reputation got him in trouble, <laughs> but it always earned him respect. So today I have one big thing to say, and here it is. I hope you'll jot it down. There's a place in the bulletin for, for taking notes. How you live matters. A godly reputation gives you a lasting influence in pointing others to God. Let's say it together, shall we? How you live matters. A godly reputation gives you a lasting influence in pointing others to God. But I have seen, and so have you, people who have thrown away their reputation. I've watched them damage their good name. I've seen them lose the respect of their family and their friends. And it is so tragic to see that happen. Daniel's godly reputation is a great example of this verse in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.12, and I'm going to put it up here in the New Living Translation. It says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Well, that says a lot right there, doesn't it? Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when He judges the world. So, your reputation matters, your character matters, your honesty matters, your, your kindness and patience and your courage, and even how you act at a ball game. It matters. Your godly reputation matters more than you know. 
when a person needs somebody to pray for them, who are they going to call on? Somebody that they know who really prays. When someone is searching for truth and, and understanding, and they're saying, well, what, is, what does the Bible say about this? Who are they going to call on? Somebody who they know really reads the Bible. When someone's dealing with a failure in their life, and they're, they're really sweating it out, who are they going to call on? Someone who's been really honest about their own failures and has found life on the other side. You know, I think about all of you young people who are... Uh, maybe going off to college or going back to college or going on to the military. And, and I know that many of you, you grew close to God during your high school time. And, and you learned to be, and you've adopted a life as a follower of Jesus and as, as his disciple. And, and you're learning to love God more and to love your neighbors. And, and you have, you've got this identity. I'm God's child. I'm a, I'm a new creation in Christ. And so once you leave home, don't throw it away. Guard it. Make friends with others who are on this same path with you. Encourage each other. Support each other because, and let me say it again, how you live matters. A godly reputation gives you a lasting influence in pointing others to God. Now, I'm not telling you that you need to manage your reputation. I'm not telling you that you need to be like celebrities who, who carefully craft their image on social media. I'm just saying, be true to God. Live your life consistently and let your reputation just take care of itself. You know, I think about some of the people that I have known through the years and some of the places that I've been. I remember one of the small towns that I served in. There, there was a guy in our church uh, who was just always just kind of real jovial personality and, and smiled a lot and really loved to greet people. So he was our head usher. And just, you know, kind of a little bit dorky too, but everybody loved him for it, you know. And uh, so anyway, uh, and, and he, he just loved the church. I mean, he just was the biggest number one supporter of, of the church. And I remember one Sunday, I don't know if this was Easter or whenever, but we had a huge crowd, like one of the biggest crowds the church had ever seen. And I remember we had communion, and he was the last person to come up for communion. And, and as, as he came by, before he received communion, he leaned over to whisper in my ear and gave me a little piece of paper which had the number of people who were in church that Sunday. He was so happy. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very tragic thing that, that he was killed in, a, in an accident with, the, with farm equipment. And we had his service there at the church. But I think about his reputation and the kind of influence that he had on people and the, and, and the impact on that whole community. I remember also a... Uh, in another small town that I served, there was a, a lady there who was sort of the, the I would call her in a, in a very affectionate way, kind of the queen of the church, or at least she used to be. You know, uh, not in, in a powerful way, but just in a, in a very endearing way. Uh, some of you may have remembered a few years ago, Catherine Kirby, before she died, and uh, at this church, she was the Catherine Kirby of, of that church. 
And by the time I was there, she was in her 90s already, and uh, she was in a nursing home. So, but I, I went to visit her, and she she was dealing with some dementia, forgetfulness, and all. And and but fortunately for her, she did not lose any of her cheerful, sunny disposition. I mean, she just she was just overly wonderfully kind, and and su- sweet, and and. And she had done so many things for so many people over the years. She just was endeared to the whole congregation. Well, anyway, she, she passed away. She died. And um, I think she had two children, but one of them, especially the son, didn't, was adamant that they were not going to have a funeral. I mean, I don't really remember why or if she even had a reason, but they were not going to have a funeral for her. And, of course, that was heartbreaking to everybody. And so what I did is um, I, I took an, a little ad out in the weekly newspaper there at the town because it was pretty cheap to do that in those days. And I said, you know, in our service this week, uh, we are going to have a time of remembering her. And so that Sunday morning, we took about 10 or 15 minutes, and we had people just stand wherever they were and just share a little story about her and memory of her. And, um, and we had to do that because of the impact that she had had on so many people and, and how she had endeared herself to them over the years. But that was because her life had established this reputation. Okay, um, let's go back to Daniel, all right? So Daniel, he comes to the palace at the king's request. To, he comes to interpret the handwriting that's on the wall. But first, he has to give Belshazzar a history lesson. Of course, Belshazzar already knows it, how when, when Nebuchadnezzar was king, he was arrogant and his heart was, was hardened with pride. And then in fulfillment of a dream, he fell into mental illness and lived like an animal in the wilderness for seven years. When his sanity was restored, he resumed his reign, and this time he was a more humble king, giving glory to God most high. Now let's go to verses 22 and 23. And here, Daniel again shows the courage uh, which he has such a reputation for. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and, you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of uh, 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 bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. So, Daniel explains the handwriting on the wall. Now, the words there are, are for um, weights for coins, okay? So, coins and, and weights were kind of interchangeable at that point. And, and I'm not going to go through the whole explanation of it because I don't really have the time to right now. But, I, but if, we, if I were to translate it into, uh, you know, the, the monetary terms of our day, I might go something like this. Here's a dime. Because today, your reign is going to stop on a dime and be done. 
Here's a penny because that's all the sense you have. And here's a half dollar because your kingdom will be cut in half and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, the Persians broke through the, the, the very highly fortressed city of Babylon. The ancient Greek historians uh, Herodotus and Xenophon both record that when the Persians came in and conquered Babylon, it was at night during a festival, just like the one described in Daniel 5. And the Persians uh, took Babylon by diverting the water upstream from the Euphrates River, and they came in underneath on that dry riverbed. And that's how they were able to enter the city and conquer it. And the Babylonian king and all those in his palace were killed that night. Belshazzar had a reputation. He was an arrogant man who thought he was invincible and he refused to honor God. Daniel had a reputation. He was a humble, courageous man who listened to God. And his influence continues to this day. So, what is your reputation? What is your reputation? And what would you like it to be? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, um, we are, some, some of us here are recognizing that our hearts are hardened with pride. And uh, even times we've come here to church before, we've sort of held you off, saying, well, you're not going to get that close to me, God. I'm going to do my life my way. And, Lord, we have not humbled ourselves before you. And so, Lord, today, we want to make a change of heart. We ask for your help. We bow before you and recognize that you are the, you are the God above all, all kingdoms of the earth. And we ask that you will rule over us. Jesus, we ask that you will come and make, your, make our hearts your home. Come and, and live within us and lead us into this new path of life. Lord, help our lives to, to gradually, over time, to, to build a reputation that will, that will glorify you, that will point others toward you. And so, today, as we're continuing our prayer, if you're one of those who would say, I, ne I need to, to do that. I need to, to open my life to Jesus and give my life to him and let him make his, his home in my heart. Would you just simply raise your hand right now as your way of stating it by faith that, yes, Jesus, that's what I want. That's what I need in my life. Thank you, many of you. Oh, Lord, hear our cry. And thank you for being faithful and forgiving way more than we ever deserve, way more than we can even imagine. Take our lives. We are yours. And all God's people said, Amen.